0: First, a word from our sponsor, Film Movement Plus, a streaming service for fans of independent and foreign film, delivers a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best movies from prestigious festivals around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are acclaimed films you won't find anywhere else, plus newly restored classics and award-winning shorts with new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But Watch with Gen listeners can get a 14-day free trial, plus 30% off their annual subscription using the promo code gen 30 Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Today, I am so honored to welcome two incredible guests to the podcast. Up first and returning for the first time since our James Spader episode last spring, which spiraled off into another episode on the actor for screen drafts as well, we have my pal Kate Hagen, a singular and passionate writer whose work has appeared in Playboy, The Hollywood Reporter, and more. Since 2014, Kate has also served as the Director of Community at The Blacklist, Where she's an executive and runs the Blacklist blog, plus, oversees all website partnerships and their social media ecosystem with over 250,000 followers as well. And next, joining Kate and I today, we have a very special guest and one of my all time favorite filmmakers, the gifted Allison Anders, a Los Angeles based independent writer director who's won both a MacArthur Genius Grant, along with a Peabody Award. Allison's acclaimed films include her terrific debut, Border Radio, co-directed with UCLA classmates Kurt Voss and Dean Lent, Gas Food Lodging, Mi Vida Loca, Grace of My Heart, Things Behind the Sun, and more. Additionally, a professor at the University of California Santa Barbara, who teaches courses in rock and roll films, autobiographic writing, and music supervision. Allison is also someone you'll regularly see in documentaries and Criterion special features, sharing her valuable insights as a knowledgeable film and music historian. Ladies, it is so great having you both here today. How are you doing and how's 2022 treating you so
1: far? Great to be here. Um, 2022. If you had asked me two weeks ago, I would have had a different different response. But at least the masks are coming off. I mean, that's good. You know, (laughs) Um, the numbers are going down on COVID. But um, Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's been quite a time, I must say. It
0: really has. A
2: time yeah. to be alive, as they say. I'm ready to live through some less historic times. I don't yes. know about you guys, but let's like, let's that. turn
0: the volume down a little yeah. bit.
2: Thanks. Yeah. No <laughs> more first.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> no more unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. Not like that. <laughs> <Yes>. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, the reason we're here today is to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Allison's heartfelt second feature and her debut as a solo filmmaker with the masterful award-winning 1992 Sundance Film Festival titled Gas Food Lodging, half drawn from her own life, as well as Richard Peck's novel Don't Look and It Won't Hurt. The film, which is centered on a single mother played by Brooke Adams, struggling to raise her two teenage girls, Faruza Bulk and Ioni Sky, in the middle of a small desert truck stop town in New Mexico, garnered Allison the award for best new director from the prestigious New York Critics Circle. One of my favorites since I first saw it as a new release in the 90s. I would love to know more, including how you first became involved with Gas Food Lodging.
1: Well, it is a long story, but I'll try and make it. I love it. it. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um- When I was in film school uh, at UCLA, there was a guy who was not in the film department, but he would come come around, you know, watching movies and stuff. And he just kind of hang out in the film department, even though he was an English major. So um, and his name was uh, Bill Ewart, William Ewart, And um, so he kind of, you know, like. One day I was sitting in the class at Melnitz Hall and I turned around to look for something. I don't know what. And he was sitting there gossiping with somebody and pointing at me. Whoa. He was like, what? (laughs) And so he goes, oh, no. And he started laughing. He came up and he goes, no, it's just I noticed that you have a pin on your coat that says the state of things and he said and I really love that movie it was from Vin vendors movie. Yes. the of things and he said I love that movie and I really like Vin vendors too so so we became friends but he was always kind of inviting me out but with his with him and his girlfriend so I was like what what's going on here <laughs> what does this guy want from me? Does he think I can introduce him to Vim Vendors or what is it? You know? <laughs> and so finally he, uh, he just, he just liked me. I don't know. He was, he laughs about it to this day. He goes, I liked you. You had a cute butt, <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't, he wasn't wanting to date me or anything. No. It was so funny. And he was like, he was like, but I but I liked you. And then he saw all my films and he oh. saw uh, Border Radio in every installment at UCLA. And then he and Kurt became good friends as well. And then Kurt did, um, after we had graduated, and actually after we had split up, he he worked on a project with Cineville, with Carl Copart who unbeknownst to me, had started a company with Bill Ewart. So they had started Cineville together and Kurt had, um, written the script for, uh, Carl's movie delusion. Mm -hmm. And then right after that, Carl had bought this book, this paperback at like a, you know, just like at a thrift store. And, um, He said he would buy all these books because he was Belgian and he was always trying to learn English by buying these books and reading them. Oh, wow. And with that one, he thought it was a really good that it could make a good movie. So Bill said, oh, I know somebody that could write that script. And it was, you know, it was yours truly because I had won a couple of screenwriting awards uh, upon leaving UCLA. So he was aware of that. And so I had a little press around that and I had an agent and, you know, so, um, Bill got me, he, he said, you know, I've got, we've got a draft of the script and, um, and then, uh, we need it rewritten. And he says, and if you rewrite it, you'll probably get to direct it. Wow. Wow. So that kind of blew my mind. Now, originally, Carl says, well, I was actually going to direct it. But then he (laughs) said, when you came in with your ideas, I was like, well, she's going to totally make this all about the single mom angle, which is what the book was. I mean, it was a single mother. But um, but I was but he was like, but I, I realized, oh, this is like so female centric and so single mom centric. I don't I don't know anything about this. So Allison should actually direct this. So. That's really, in a nutshell, how it happened. You know it was those kind of odd connections coming together. So I can say that you know it's it's part perspiration and it's part just random shit that happens, you know <laughs> kind of get you get you through this thing that we call the entertainment business, you know,
0: yeah, absolutely and i know you were a single mom at the time so you were able to relate and i guess you changed quite a bit from the book uh, the book she was more dour and yeah and yeah. set in chicago yeah.
1: wasn't it? yeah it was set in chicago it was um but from the beginning carl says don't set it in chicago set it in new mexico so yes. i thought Oh, that's intriguing okay i'll do that so um so it was set in Chicago. She had three daughters, and I thought, well, two's enough. So I got rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then I wanted the mom to have something too. I wanted her to have some fun. I wanted her to have a sex life. I didn't want her to just be depressed all the time. Yeah, you know, and burdened by being a single mother. So, but the interesting thing was is that when when we set out to cast, I mean, I I of course brought my personal experience as single mom into it. Mm-hmm. And I had daughters. I mean, my daughters were a little bit younger, but not too much younger than the leads. So my oldest daughter was the same age as Feruza. Mm-hmm. So they were both 16 when we made the movie. And Ione was, I think, maybe almost 19. Maybe she was okay. 19 at that point. Um, and then my other daughter was was younger. She was 13. But um You know, the incredible thing is, is that, you know, when we went to, when I went to cast, um, I mean, I had Brooke and then I got Ioni. I knew, I knew Brooke and I knew Ioni a little bit, not too much, but she had not done a character like this, you know, where she was just constantly like angry and Mm -hmm. the bad girl. I mean, she had been the best girl you can possibly be and say anything. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) She was the ultimate good girl, you know, Mm -hmm. so um, good girl with texture, you know, in that movie. And so, you know, she was excited to take this on because she wanted to do something different. And, um, and then Brooke was excited to take it on. And then it was like, where do we find you know the girl to be shade, which was a really tricky um, part to to cast because she had to be very innocent, getting mm-hmm. her first kiss, etc. But yet extremely wise, and not totally wise because you know part of the re- re- way that the na- voiceover narration works is she doesn't always have all the information. You know, That's
0: true.
1: So she, yeah. You know, got this innocence to her. You know. But um, but she had to be insightful, and so the trick for that was unbelievable. And you know, when you're casting teenagers, a couple of years makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. So like Reese Witherspoon, everybody came in; wow. they were all like new, you know, or not. They were reinvented child stars. So like Reese Witherspoon came in, and she but she was 14. Mm-hmm. And it really showed that she was just too young for the part. You know, sure. I mean, I'll never forget her audition. I mean, I saw I saw like at least 100 girls for this. Wow. And Reese was one. And, you know, I remember all the stories she told in that meeting and that audition. And I thought, wow, she's such a good actress. And I she's too young for the part. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody that was the right age was Drew Barrymore. But Drew ah. Barrymore, unlike her bubbly childhood self and her bubbly self now, you know, where she's like totally fun and, yeah. totally, you know, accessible, she was in this very deep teen angst period. So it oh, was gotcha. this very brooding period. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, man, you know, I I brought her back, I think, several times, you know, Mm because I really loved her and I thought, oh, this could be so good. But it was just it was just not not the role, you know. So um, and it's great because that year she got cast by Kate Shea in Poison Ivy and she was spectacular, you know, because she could take that teen angst broodiness and put it into that role. And it was perfect. It was just ideal.
2: How is casting for you generally, Allison? Do you find that like, you know, you meet somebody and it's that sort of instant spark or does it usually take you a couple conversations with folks to be like, this is the one?
1: Usually, and this is the thing, I think it's very intuitive. And I think you really need to go with that. And I feel like nowadays going with intuition, it's almost like the scariest word you can say in a meeting. <laughs> I'm intuitive kind of, and they're like, oh, what's intuitive. the international value of
2: this actor? You're like, I don't know. are <laughs> right for the part. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So it's really, it's really like, uh I mean, it was, I had certain requirements to fulfill, to finance that movie, but it's not like what you have to do now. Like what yeah. you have to, now is insane. You're just like, well, if I can get all this and this and this and this, why do I need you? You know, that's just, you know, (laughs) but back then, you know, it was just like, you know, it was the great Larry Estes program at Columbia TriStar, where Larry was like, it was a video pre-buy. And Larry was like, I need two names I can put on the video box. And so I filled that with Ioni and Brooke and with, uh, and then I got him a third with um, James Brolin. So therefore I was free to cast the rest of the movie. Yeah. In this very organic way. So finding the person for shade became, you know, sort of a, an open call as it, as, as it were. So Carl Colpart has all this nervous energy to this day. And he was just walking around our offices. There was a, there was a place over on Bundy Avenue called Skywalker Sound. Yes, that's. Yeah. Skywalker. But it was um, it was on the Lions Gate. If you can believe this, Robert Altman had started this little studio, and so we were over on Bundy in West Hollywood. I mean, West Los Angeles, and um, so uh, he was walking around, went down into the casting office, and he's looking at the stack of you know headshots, and he picks one up, and he's like. What about this girl? She's in she was in Valmont, you know, and they were like, Ooh. well, and this was the other trick, tricky thing that we had was they were trying to get somebody who was 18 so that we could work them longer hours as an adult and all oh. of that. But um, but the 18, the past 16, they all came in too sophisticated, you know, and I needed a 16 year old. So the minute he picked that up, they were like, well, he, she's 16. And he says, well, and then they're like, and she's in Canada, she doesn't even live here, you know? (laughs) So he just kind of persisted. And then he presented the idea to me and I go, oh, I love that little girl. And I go, how old is she? 16. So I was like, but that's what I'm looking for, you know? So So the, they took that risk. Catherine Balk and Feruza flew down from Vancouver. Wow. Big risk, you know, single mm-hmm. mom with a teenage kid. And, you know, it's I mean, it had been a couple of years now since Valmont. And, you know, so they flew down for one day. Wow. And uh, the minute that I saw her, I was like, I know. I mean, unless she totally botches this and Carl was remembering today as I was writing, he was like, oh, yeah, she did the um, you just hate men speech. Uh-oh. And I was like, he says, I remember that. And I go, I remember she prepared three things and I don't remember any of it. I, I was already looking at her going, okay. So now when we're making the movie, blah, blah. I mean, I had already cast her in my mind as she was auditioning for me. And so, um, so that was kind of an amazing thing. But here's the funny part of it was how, Ioni Skye, raised by a single mom. Mm. Peruza, raised by a single mom. Brooke, single mom, raised by parents, by two parents, but herself, a single mom at the time. So I, and Brooke and Ione, look alike. Ione and Peruza look alike. I mean, it was really crazy. It was yeah. this, unconscious. I wasn't looking for those things. I wasn't going... Well, you know, Reese doesn't look like Brooke or, you know, True mm-hmm. looks more like, you know, I wasn't looking at anything like that. It was really just kind of an intuitive way to go about it, you know. And so it I ended up with that cast that really looked like a family, you know, and behaved like a family, and they had those experiences of single parenting and being raised by single parents exactly, you know. That's extraordinary. Yeah. 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 It was just crazy. And it was very unconscious on my part.
0: I love that you're using the word intuitive and intuition because my website is Film Intuition. I started it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I know. When I started it, it was dedicated to female filmmakers. So I thought female intuition. So just yes. go back full circle. So I love oh, that. Okay. <laughs> that uh, just showing right. where exactly where we're supposed that's to be. I know you had mentioned in an interview once that you were really nervous to uh, direct Brooke Adams because she'd been in so many movies, had so much experience, okay. but she was a very particular help for you. Was there any advice she gave you that you would be willing to share?
1: Well, what she told me was, I said, "You know, I'm actually really afraid of directing you," and she said, "Why?" And I go, "Well, hello, you've been directed by Terrence Malick, Philip Kaufman, all these people," and she goes, "Yeah, I have more experience than you, and that's that's great for you because I'm going to help you," and Aww. she really did. I mean, she really knew. Um. I mean, they were just funny things like, like, for example, when they've run out of tampons and she's sitting there, you know, yeah. on the toilet and she goes, she looks at me and she goes, what am I doing? And I go, oh, yeah, what are you doing? She goes, well, you know what I'm doing. And she starts rolling <laughs> toilet paper. And, yeah. you know, it's just things like that where I was like, oh, my God, what a gift, you know, what a gift actors can give you. You know, are these, you know, they they think, you know, as a director, especially a writer director, sometimes you think it's on the page. Mm-hmm. And like, for, for example, there, that wasn't on the page. It wasn't on the page what Brooke was actually doing when I've got the camera there, you know. So, <laughs> So that's the kind of thing that I think um, I learned from her big time, you know, with stuff like that. Yeah. So the way that you have to keep a boundary, like like with, like, again, you have to be intuitive with actors. Some actors need a lot of boundaries. Some Mm -hmm. actors need a lot of freedom, you know? I mean, you have to kind of intuit that. And, of course, with Brooke, I mean, she was such a pro that, you know, she, she could really just be left to, you know, not that I didn't direct her, I did direct her but, but she, she knew when to ask for that from me, you know. Kind of in that
2: same vein, I noticed, I don't know why I hadn't picked up on on previous watches of the film, but in the end credits, I noticed that you thank Vim Vendors as your mentor. And, you know, mentorship, I think, is this like vague thing. We all have various ideas around, but I know you've spoken so warmly about Vim over the years and your experiences on Paris, Texas. And I'm wondering what you took from that into the making of Border Radio and Gas Food Lodging.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, First of all, that location, Deming, New Mexico, is also in Paris, Texas. Very briefly, just a little oh, shot of. I love that. But, um, but that was a place that Dean Lent, who shot Gas Food Lodging and did Border Radio with me, um, he and I drove VIM's van to Texas for Paris, Texas. So with his stepson, um, Patrick Kreutzer. So the three of us were in that van and we went right through Deming. So that was the first time I had ever been there on the 10. And, um, but I think that with Vim, you know, I saw how, you know, in Paris, Texas, I'd see how he worked with Robbie Mueller and how they almost had a um, unspoken sense between them Mm. I also saw that he knew what each actor individually needed you know Harry needed well Harry Dean he he ended up having me run lines with Harry oh wow and the incredible thing is that Harry so I'm in the I'm in Harry's trailer with him and Dean Stockwell and Harry's very frustrated because he doesn't know what's in Travis's head when he's not talking. Oh. And he says, I can't get this information. Now probably Vim didn't want him, I don't know what, what it was. Maybe Vim didn't want him to have that information because he'd overthink it. But um who knows? You know, that that was their relationship. But when he's voicing that out loud, he says, I mean, is he mute? Is he catatonic? <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was catatonic once, you know, and and he was like him and Dean Stockwell are like, oh, OK. And I go, <laughs> Yeah, I said I was catatonic and I said um, as a teenager and I said and I wrote a poem about it. And they're both looking at each other and Dean Stockwell says, Honey, would you happen to have that poem with you? And I said, I actually do. That's wow. amazing. I, I did <laughs> so um, so they sent somebody to go get it at my hotel room. And then they just grilled me and And Harry was like, so what were you thinking? And could you hear people talking to you? And why wouldn't you talk? And, Mm. you know, all this stuff. So later he used, he told everybody at Canon all over the place to to the end, even in the documentary about him um, a few years ago. He said there was a girl on the film. She had had this experience. And he said, and that was how the approach that I used with Travis. So I had no idea that that kind of experience was going to, that I could use my experience for an actor and give that to an actor to use for their performance. So that was was a huge gift that Vim gave me because Vim knew to... S- send me to work with Harry Dean, you know, cause I was yeah. not a good PA. Otherwise I didn't drive. I didn't. <laughs> work, hockey. So, and he would have me move around in different departments because he wanted me to see what it was like, you know, to work in different departments. So I worked in props. I worked miserably in wardrobe for a while. And then <laughs> I, you know, and just kind of moved around, you know. And of course, I got to work with the great Claire Dennis, you know. On um, yes, she was our, our she was our boss. She was our mother hen. She called it.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> cool. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So that was incredible. And I think that Vim Vim also told me because he had seen my I had written journals during Paris, Texas, and and I gave him copies of the journals. And he um, stopped me one day walking in the hall. He goes, oh, this one. He goes, come here. He says, because I thought, oh, he's not going to read these journals now. He's too busy. Oh, no, he read them. So he was like, and I would write things like, I see how Vim manipulates all the women on the crew. (laughs) 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 Not in, not in, just, just kind of like gets, gets what he needs from each department, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of thing to, to move the film along. And, um, so he, uh, he, he said, you know, he says, oh, you think you know me so well. And he goes, just remember the film always, the, uh, the production always reflects what the film is about. Oh. And at this point, we have been shut down by the teamsters. And I was like, Hmm, I think this reflects what your last film was about, which was the state of things where exactly <laughs> that happens. You know, the film gets shut down and the, and the producers run off with the money. But, um, but uh, I f- have found this to be very true, you know, that, um, that often the theme of the film will definitely reflect, the production will reflect that feeling, you know, what the film is, the, the meaning you're trying to get across. Mm. So you gotta That's be careful incredible. when you're doing very dark material.
0: Yes. Well, that brings a question I was going to talk to you about. One of my favorite things about your whole filmography is your courage in really opening up about your own life, including not only your experience as a victim of childhood sexual assault, which you handled so brilliantly in gas food lodging, as well as things behind the sun which I think is still one of the most powerful and moving, admittedly the hardest films I've ever watched, but just such a good film. But also you draw on, as we mentioned, your background as a single mother and the questions you have about mothers and daughters, absent fathers, and the many men that we meet throughout life. Were you always interested in autobiographical filmmaking?
1: You know, I think... uh... I think it just came to me pretty easily as a teenager because I would write poetry that was pretty, um, it was never about what was out there. I wanted to write about what was out there more than I wanted <laughs> to write about what was in here. But what was in here, I always demanded that I write that. And um, it's funny because I think there are people who, I was thinking about this today, how there are lots of people who don't write from personal experience. Mm -hmm. They don't write books from that. They don't write screenplays from that. Uh, They don't have to direct something that they can relate to in any which way, except with their imagination. And that's all great. That's totally valid. I wish I could have a little break like that to be able to do it. But for me, it's always been, um, I just feel like if I'm writing from somewhat from personal experience, then I can then I can get the characters going. you know, mm-hmm. I get I can get them moving. I can give more specific details to the characters than if than if I don't know. If I don't know the place and I don't know the characters, it's it's tough, man. It's really tough. And that's why, you know, sometimes directing episodic TV has been sure. kind of because I don't really know what the, I mean. You can all you can do is watch the previous episodes and trust that everybody on the crew and the cast knows mm-hmm. the characters better than you. But, you know, I'm I'm able to only bring so much, you know, to that.
0: Are there any guidelines you would offer younger filmmakers or screenwriters who are interested but kind of worried about tackling the very
1: personal in their own work? Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, I would say journaling is probably the best thing. You know, if you start journaling and you look at movies that you respond to personally in a very personal way then I think you're, it's a good way to start crafting your own material. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of people are scared. And look, I sometimes am scared, too, about, you know, other people in your family. I get this a lot from my students. Like, if my mom ever read this mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, it's just they're scared of, like, exposing other people, which I think is is a rather beautiful thing to be. True to be that empathetic toward other people that you want to silence yourself. Hmm. But in the end, I think you're not, you know, I just, uh, the the director of uh, the hand of God recently, I did a zoom where people were asking him questions and I asked him about this and he goes, well, you know, you can't please, you, you're not going to make everybody happy when you write an autobiographical mm-hmm. piece, you know, or a personal piece and um you're gonna confound your family and you know that's just how it goes. But I think, you know, our drive is to tell stories is personal and you just have to, you know, you have to uh honor yourself first. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you that if you're honest as you're writing it, the more honest you get, the less finger pointing you're doing at other people, you know, cause you don't want to be the victim of your story. You want to be the hero, you know, you want right. to be the, you don't even want to be the survivor. You want to be the, the hero of the story. So, so I think that, uh, then you elevate everybody else up, you know, I think.
2: It's so interesting you mentioned the journaling specifically because in rewatching your films this week, I was the two things I was thinking about most were the idea of female loneliness on screen and the very mm. female act of creation on screen. Like I've seen Grace of My Heart many times, but I don't know, something about this watch, maybe it's just where I am in my life in particular, but like what Edna De- Denise has to do to get that album yes. out is just so moving. And I'm wondering, is journaling still a part of your creative process? And how do you sort of calibrate bringing those personal experiences to the screen in a way that still feels really universal in doing so?
1: You know, um, thank you for that. Yeah. You know, it really makes me remember um, all that Edna goes through to to make a project and then Mm -hmm. it, and then it doesn't do well. And then she's like questioning her talent again, you know, and it's, it's um, you know, I think that that's, uh, that's particularly female, Mm -hmm. not that men don't go through their ups and downs, but they get a lot more shots at it still, still, I'm happy for all the progress that's made, but you know, it's incremental. You. We can say
2: that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Believe you me. It's not. Um, and I think that. Uh, I mean, for me, I just started journaling again with my granddaughter because she was journaling. So she's like, let's, let's journal. So we we started journaling together. And I've still got it by my bed. I haven't written it in, in it in a, at least a month. But mm-hmm. and I don't think she's written in hers. But it was that act of doing that and reading stuff to each other that was fantastic, you know. And I, but but every day I work on writing in some capacity, and so you know I'm always working on something where I have to write down um, details. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I tell my students is that in the autobiographical writing is that, you know, it's really getting those details. And I also tell them the unforgivable, which is to definitely don't let, li- you know, in this class, you you are the director. So when you're writing your script, I want as much detail in the, the description. Yes, ah. the page count will be longer. But I want to know the sense of place, Mm -hmm. what people are wearing, what they're eating. I want to know all that stuff about those characters. So for me, that's really crucial: is to have all those details, you know. And um, and then you can deliver that when you go make your movie to your production designer, which is what happened in Gas Food Lodging. When I worked with a production designer for the first time, Jane Stewart was like. How long have they lived in this trailer? Oh, good question. What, did the dad live here with them mm-hmm. before he left? Maybe there was a fight in the kitchen and, you know, Nora threw a plate of eggs at him or something, you know? So mm-hmm. she, and then she built those walls to reflect that stuff, the history, So so that there's this texture that is, you know, completely... Um, you know, you know where those people live. You know, Monty Hellman always said, I want to know where the characters sleep. I want to know how they sleep. Where do they sleep? Who sleeps with them? How do they sleep? Do they sleep this way? Do they need a pillow? Do they need blankets? Do they, <laughs> you know? And I thought that's really key is like, you know, you want to know all of that stuff so that it's shorthand, you know, so that when you're watching a movie, that stuff is done for you. You're just subliminally taking it all in. You think you're watching. You think all you're doing is watching characters talk or act. But in fact, you're taking in a whole lot more information than you know
0: from mm. where they
1: live, you know, and what they what the history of that place is.
0: Yes. Well, your films are known for the brilliant way that you incorporate music. Obviously, I'm especially partial to Grace of My Heart, which is my favorite one of your films Mm. because of the music of the period and the way you weave a woman's arc throughout it. Our stories are kind of hidden usually as muses, wives or girlfriends, daughters, but that doesn't happen in this film. So what inspired you for Grace of My Heart?
1: Well, when I was at UCLA, I wanted to do, I got this amazing book called I think it was just called the history of girl groups. And it was by this guy, Alan Batrock, who was a rock journalist. I think he worked at cream and some Mm. other magazines Mm. and he did all these great, like, you know, books, like, you know, juvie delinquent movies, you know, and then he did (laughs) like you know, the history of girl groups and, and he had the most astonishing photographs, which of course now are all over the place, but it was like, Carol King and Jerry Goffin in the Brill Building. And and I have been just a massive fan of girl group music and of, in particular, the Shangri-Las. And, you know, I mean, to me, the two people that influenced how I write female characters were both musicians. So it was Mary Weiss, the singer for the Shangri-Las, how she delivered voiceover narration, basically interior monologues and the songs and that kind of you know non-plus but riveting storytelling so that was ellie greenwich and jeff berry writing most of those songs it was shadow morton producing those songs and it was mary weiss's voice and delivery and then the other person was Paul McCartney because he wrote all these great female characters. He wrote Milady Madonna. He wrote, you know, Eleanor Rigby. He wrote For No One, where he's the guy being dumped, but he writes it from her perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I
1: mean, just so many. Fan- Another Day. I mean, just fantastic female character-driven songs. So, um, so for me, music really started that kind of. Uh, drive for me, because as a kid, I was really obsessed with, you know, with records and, you know, with with all of that stuff. So so when I saw the uh, girl group book, I was like so moved by those photographs. And there's a fantastic. In fact, I've got one of the Shangri-Las right here that I ripped from the book all those years ago. <laughs> wow. That's framed. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, so it was really, uh, you know, I thought, well, there's a there's a movie here, but I couldn't do it in film school. You know, there was mm-hmm. no, no way. And I toyed around with a lot of different things, you know, like maybe, you know, it's about the Shangri-Las, or maybe it's about, you know, uh, maybe it's about songwriters, but mm-hmm. when Ileana, by the time that Ileana came to me um, and we were connected through Marcus Hugh and Ruth Charney and they came to me um, with Ileana and um, the minute that I looked at her, I thought, oh, this is like a really, she she's completely unique. There is nobody else like her. And she's so smart, and you know, I just thought, oh, maybe the Brill. I mean, we had gone through a bunch of different things. You know, we had thought about a bunch of different things to do together. But when I when I went back to the Brill Building um, and thought about that Alan Betrock book, it was really I thought that's what we got to do, you know, so that she's one of those Brill Building songwriters, and I think the idea of someone. Uh, I mean, it's ironic because she starts out not writing from personal experience. She's writing other people's experiences, Mm -hmm. says it didn't ever happen to me. I just made it up, Uh you know, but then in the end, it's all her experiences. And I was also very, you know, I was very moved and driven by um, the, the singer songwriter Women, you know, I mean, Carol King, obviously, and uh, Joni Mitchell, and you know, Joni Mitchell, I mean, said something amazing because she came to see the film, uh, a cut of it, to in order to write a song for for me, mm-hmm. and she said she was so she got so upset watching the scene where Matt Dillon is telling Ileana, you know, telling Edna, you know, you're gonna you're gonna go and you're gonna do a a concept album and it's going to be better than other guys because it's going to be personal. Mm-hmm. And Joan was so upset by that because she said, um, she says, well, they sure didn't say that to me. And she said oh. that one, uh, one, one uh, musician when he heard blue said, Oh, Joan, you should keep some of that stuff to yourself. Wow. Yeah. Ah. And he's a great musician, but you know, the fact yes. that, it was just the idea that, ooh, it was almost too, too intense. You know, she was being too intense, T- intense Scorpio, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> herself out there like that. So, so that kind of, you know, th- some of that stuff really drove, um, drove that character, you know, is just to, I mean, she does eventually find her voice and it's about her. Yeah. About the people. It's really about her feelings, you know?
0: Yeah. Watching border radio again this past week, I was struck by how gorgeous that score still is. And I felt Mm -hmm. the same watching gas food lodging and me Vita Loca as well. And grace of my heart is one of those great films that like that thing you do or almost famous, you find yourself really enjoying the faux songs that are played throughout the movie how do you oh, yeah. collaborate with musicians?
1: Well, it's funny that you mentioned the border radio score because I was just recently telling Edgar Wright how um, <laughs> um, one piece of the music in um, border radio got uh, got grifted off of our, you know, by, by Oliver Stone for oh. Wall Street. Oh, wow. So, you know, you kind of... <laughs> <laughs> you kind of put the two scenes next to each. Other. <laughs> um, you know, they both happen on the beach, but they're very different scenes, you know? And so um, um, it was, you know, it was one of those things where there was nothing we could do about it because, um, you know, it had been written for our movie, but we understood that it was an opportunity for Dave Alvin and Steve Berlin to get to make some money because they didn't make any money off of our movie. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they made 500 bucks, you know, Mm -hmm. to do that beautiful score. So, um, so that was pretty amazing. I mean, that was funny that it, ended because, you know, I looked I looked it up when I was telling Edgar this, he says, Oh God, I would be so honored if um, Oliver Stone stole one of my pieces of music. And I (laughs) said, well, it made me cry at the time, but you know, in retrospect, it was pretty great. But, um, I, and I have no idea how I mean, this was so obscure, this movie and wow. the soundtrack. And so, how he found it, I have no idea. Although, Daryl Hannah had seen a cut of the movie because we were trying to get her to invest in our film. <laughs> mm. <laughs> she, she <did. laughs> but, um, and then, uh, and then Pietro, who, um, who, uh, who was Oliver Stone's, um, editor also went to UCLA with us. So maybe he knew the film from there, but, you know, later Pietro, when I was editing gas food lodging, he says, oh, and they were editing in the same place. And he says, oh yeah. Um, we, we, Oliver always wants to use border radio soundtrack on, (laughs) on his temp, on his temp cuts. And I was like, yeah, no shit. He says he, <laughs> loves that. he loves that record. I'm like, great. <laughs> well, he's not getting this one. <laughs> oh, man. I
2: just um, want to shout out to listeners that as we were talking to Allison, she has a beautiful wall of beautiful vinyl records behind her. Yeah. I also want to shout out Allison's brilliant daughter, Tiffany Anders, who is a music mm-hmm. supervisor. And I believe most recently did Reservation
0: Dog
1: yeah indeed yeah she's ten fifteen, reservation dogs um yeah she's she's really she's she's phenomenal she's you so talented out Al-
2: Anders gals just <laughs> taking Hollywood <laughs>
1: by a storm <laughs> I was just gonna say I have more more records but I think at least half of them are at Tiffany's where she's like quadruple <laughs> she's got quadruple what I have uh, oh. You
2: own a, a specific ho- classic Hollywood stars record collection for folks who
1: may not know
2: uh, oh my tell God, us a little bit about that
1: ever. Yes. I own the rock and roll records of Greta Garbo. Oh my goodness. Coolest. The coolest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there was a whole lot of twisting going on in the Garbo apartment. <laughs> Okay. She really liked the twist. She loved Chubby Checker. She loved Harry Belafonte. She um loved 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 Barbara Streisand. She loved the Beatles. Mm. And um and she had, she had the first Tiffany took me to pick the records up after I won them in an auction and the very first thing that Tiffany lifted out of the box was No Other by Gene Clark, which is such a completely obscure record. Although Garbo is on the cover of it in the collage and the artwork. So maybe David Geffen got her the record. (laughs) But it's kind of amazing that she had it. And she did play it because, in fact, she played the hell out of it because it's scratched a bit. And, um, but the most amazing thing was that out of all the, so there was about 50 LPs. I later got a bit more. I was able to get a, there was a second listing and I got some more of them, but, um, uh, the most amazing thing was that she had this 45 in in the, in the collection and the 45 was, um, of, uh, of um pt 109 it was a picture sleeve a PT 109 by jim yeah so um she uh and then i looked and there is a little label on the back from a record store in washington dc so i did some research because i had a blog that i was doing of like you know greta's records and mm-hmm. i played I'd play a record and then, you know, talk about what was going on in her life at the time and then make shit up. So, um, uh-huh. so it was a lot of fun. But this one, the minute that I saw this, I was like, oh, why did she have this? This is like such a corny record and stuff. But it was a big it was a big novelty hit because it was about Kennedy and it, and it was came out during his administration. And and so it was a huge hit because, you know, he was so beloved. Um, well, I start reading about it and it turns out that Garbo really was this fangirl and she wrote fan letters to people and stuff like in her later years. Like she wrote a fan letter to like Paul Lynde, you oh know, my she goodness. To a fan <laughs> to all kinds of people. And she she was really fanned out over Kennedy and mm. presidents had invited her to the White House. She never went. But finally Jackie asked her to come and she uh she went to uh a dinner at the White House and um played a little trick with Kennedy on his best friend Lem, who was, you know, the party planner of the of the White the Kennedy White House. And um she was so charmed by them all and she was like, oh my God, you know, I'm Garbo's back. I'm gonna <laughs> I've got my friends, these new friends, and then ten days later, he was assassinated. Oh no! So, um, so when the whole I'm like obsessed with Kennedy. So when the the whole thing came out. Um, When it was the 50th anniversary of the assassination, I was so bummed out, you know, that day. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to I'm going to play that stupid record and Mm -hmm. I'm going to write about Garbo's dinner at the White House with Kennedy. And I'm going to make them dance together and stuff, (laughs) you know. And so I put the record on and then I stop because I'm going to take a picture of the record. Right. Mm -hmm. As I see writing on. And I stop and then I lift it up and it says to Greta Garbo and then this messy signature. And then at the top, it says, and love from Jackie too. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> Allison, <so> my God. <laughs> it's this completely bizarre artifact of the, and it turns out that it was the last dinner of the Kennedy Um, White House. Wow. Yeah. So I've got that artifact. Yeah, it's just above, it's framed just above the (laughs) Shangri-Las.
2: Equal footing
0: for the Shangri-Las and JFK, I would say. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. And I just I love the way that you use music and especially I think I remember an interview where you were talking about writing a letter to Vim Vendors before you knew him and you included a cassette tape of girl group music. Do you remember any of the songs that you put on that tape at all?
1: Oh, I don't, but I will tell you, I know that it included Shangri-La's. I'm sure it included He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss. (laughs) I'm sure it included um, Plenty of Darlene Love. And um, Leslie Gore, Mm. one of my favorites. And, um, you know, and then probably some like random, obscure, weirdo girl group stuff. That is so cool. And people thought it was really weird that I was doing that. And I thought, no, you just don't. He's cool. He's going to get it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of the way you use music, I watched Mi Vida Loka for the first time in so many decades uh, last week. And I was just blown away by the music in that and how it really captures the spirit of these wonderful characters. How did that project come about? Were you, I think you were, said you were living in Echo Park. This was a different uh, documentary interview. So how did you get involved with Mi Vida Loka?
1: Um, yeah, I, uh, I was living in Echo Park and, um, just would see those girls walking in the neighborhood and I found Mm. them absolutely terrifying. (laughs) Um, so I thought, well, you know, whatever scares me, I want to get to know it better, you know, so, so that was, uh, so I started approaching them and, um, it took a long time to to gain the trust. I had to um I had to get the help of the local drug dealer turned um probation officer to help me. <laughs> Tell them that That's I wasn't out. Yeah. as one does. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and um, but it's funny because once they were involved, I mean what they did was they would that was the music in that was very interesting because you couldn't just put anything in there. Mm -hmm. They had a set group of songs. It was vast, but it it had to pass the test of time. So, you know, it had to be like, you know, songs that they would dedicate to each other on Art LeBeau. So Mm -hmm. it couldn't just be like, you couldn't just throw in some random song. You know, so when we did new songs, I had to run them by them as well when we put new stuff in. And in fact, John Taylor from Duran Duran, who did my score, had sampled um Girls That Ain't Easy. And I go, what is that? And he goes, oh, it's mm-hmm. Girls That Ain't Easy by Honeycomb. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to get that. You know, so yes. so then I heard it and then I ran it by the girls and they were just like, oh, my God. And I thought. Listen, if nothing else happens, if at the end of the day, I'm dr- long after this movie's come out, if I'm driving down the street and I've got on Art LeBeau and somebody dedicates you know that song and it goes back into the culture, I'm going to be so happy. And sure enough, one night I'm driving and I get I'm Art LeBeau and this girl calls up and she goes, hello, it's little, hello, Art, it's little one from La Puente and I just wanted to dedicate Girls That Ain't Easy to my homegirls because you know it ain't. And I was like, yes, (laughs) (laughs) yes. So it's on a lot of those Art LeBeau oldies, you know, collections and stuff. And it just went back into the culture in this kind of amazing way from this. And it all came from a guy from Birmingham, England. So there you go. That's that's how it works, you know. That's how it works. It like uh, what goes around comes around, as they say in the neighborhood, you know. So (laughs) so yeah, me Vita Loca was an amazing experience for sure. Absolutely. And that was a different kind of a thing because while there's definitely very personal stories of mine in there,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I was also uh mindful of the fact that you know my goal was to have people when they'd see cholas walking down the street that they'd want to know what was going on in their heads that there was something going on so that that's why I did the multiple voiceovers in that so that it wasn't my voice it was their voice and they gave input on everything
2: it's yeah. such a masterful film and I don't know, this time watching it, I was thinking about House on Mango Street and how the, all of those stories like mm-hmm. interlock with book. each oh, other. Yeah. And I feel like, too, you managed to really, I don't know, there are so many sort of like, not that Mi Vida Loca is like a message movie in the traditional sense, but so many films from that era just feel like, sort of like, here, we are telling you about the things that are important and you should hear about. But <laughs> oh, Mi yeah. Vida Loca, it's just so baked into the story and it's so about these specific people, their specific mm-hmm. experiences. And the way that, you know, Girls It Ain't Easy hits in that final scene is just like a knife oh. to the gut. It's incredible. Yes.
1: It's really beautiful, isn't it? It works yeah. so well. And and there's things that they did. I mean, one guy was talking to me about it recently. He goes, Yeah, that they've just had this funeral, but like they're sharing a cigarette, these guys. And I go, see, that would by that by the time that we did that scene, these people just knew what they were doing. You know, they just mm. knew those characters so well and they did what they would naturally do. And it was kind of, you know, just a It's stuff where I feel like that movie in particular feels a bit outside myself in that way, which I which I love because I Mm -hmm. watch it and I go, wow. So they did, you know, they did that. Or, you know, they did funny things like there's a scene where the girls are all having a meeting, right? Mm -hmm. And then they go, raise your hands. And so sad girl raises her hand and then nobody else will raise their (laughs) hand. And Giggle's going, come on, raise your hands. Well, what happened was I would always ask them, I, I was not allowed to go to their meetings, but I uh-huh. always asked, so how does it work? You vote on some on something? They go, yes, and majority rules. We vote majority rules. So I always took that that they raised their hand, you know, you're counting the votes, right? <laughs> but we get to the to shoot the scene and they won't raise their hands so that's what happened in the scene I go that's perfect okay that cut that was really good I go but you know this time you guys let's do it again this time raise your hands and they start like having a shift fit they're like we're not raise our hands we ain't in school and I was like but you told me majority rules and they go but we ain't raising our hands so I go oh that's hilarious I go let's let's do it like that then you know, so that ends up in the,
0: in the, you know, in the movie. Yeah, I was going to ask about the Sundance Film Festival experience with Gas Food Lodging because you were part of that amazing class of filmmakers, Tarantino, Rockwell, Jarmish, mm-hmm. uh Jarman, there's so many that were in that group. So I wanted to know what the Sundance experience was like for you.
1: Well, yeah, and actually, Jarmish and the, those those movies were outside competition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Outside the competition, but the competition was, yeah, with yeah. Alex and Alex Rockwell and Quentin and I and um, uh, Neil Jimenez uh, with Water Dance. I mean, mm-hmm. Gregoraki, Christopher Munch. Wow, yeah. you know, it was pretty. It was pretty catchy with with um, Yes Ivy. And so, you know, it was pretty amazing to um to have that uh I mean, we did none of us knew what that experience was going to be like. We were all new, you know. Mm. We were all new to that festival. Okay. Gregor Rocky and I had done um had done uh had met in Torino Film Festival when with Border Radio and hmm three bewildered people in the night. Cause I saw a poster for his film and I said, Oh my God, you guys, there's a, there's a poster for a film that looks like ours. <laughs> in LA. Because back then you couldn't meet other film you only met, mm. you know, at a festival or you met them, um, at your film school. I mean, you just didn't, there was not like a community yet. Okay. So, um, so that was kind of amazing, but, um, you know, I guess the the most important thing was that we were all meeting each other, you know, mm-hmm. and, that and I met each other and hung out and, um, you know, we were all meeting each other for the first time, which was pretty, pretty incredible to think, you know, that, uh, and to have that kind of experience. And I was just thinking about how, um, not too long ago, I was telling a friend about the Oh, well, on the anniversary of, of the day, which was um, the 20, I think January 26th was the last day of the festival. So okay. that was the award ceremony. And I, you know, we didn't win anything. And I remember, because we had to be separated from the producers or something, and oh. it was a weird situation but, but my producers were up, the Cineville guys, you know, we're all up there, Dan Hassett and Carl and Bill. And um, we didn't win anything. And I just kind of like looked up at them and went, you know, I thought, Oh, you know, it was the first time that I kind of uh, had me not winning was going to um, impact other people, you know, like my producer, you know, So, um, I looked up at them and they just went like this. They went. "Eh." (laughs) (laughs) So we walked out, you know, we walked out of there and I felt all right. You know, I felt pretty good. You know, I thought, all right, well, we didn't win. Tonight, there's a party. I'll go congratulate the winners, which I have to tell people, that's what you do. If yes. you ever want to get over yourself, you congratulate the winners. Oh, of and, course. Um, not everybody did that that night, I <laughs> um, but I did. And, um, you know, and I walked out of there. Had I won, I would have missed meeting someone that w- became very important to my life because I walked out I met somebody that had liked gas, food, lodging, oh. and had I not, had I won, I ne- I would have missed that moment probably yeah. forever. Oh, so it's just interesting, you know. It's just, and that person is still like, you know, someone I'm really close to, and and you know, gets me through all kinds of bullshit. So, oh, I love that. So lovely, yeah. Year.
2: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Allison, I've got to ask, since you just mentioned him in talking about Mi Vida Loca, um, mm-hmm. we got to talk about one of your lesser seen films because it is hard to see. And that is the most wonderful Sugar Town, which mm-hmm. I think holds up as an incredible, not just industry satire, but just Los Angeles satire. So um, L.A., yes. So, LA, what can we do to get Sugar Town on a format that people can see it? The people need to know how mm-hmm. funny it is.
1: I know, I know. We <laughs> had fun making that too. We had a blast. Well, you know, it was really sad because you know this is some of the stuff you don't want to tell filmmakers, but um, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> um, is, uh, distri- distribution is really where it truly is. Almost out of your hands. There's mm-hmm. only so much you can do. Sure. And so in this case, Sugar Town was bought in this most spectacular way at Sundance. And um, it was bought by um, Bingham Ray, who, you know, had his glorious October films. So we were in this beautiful space and he was going to do such amazing things with the movie. And then he got fired and then October went under and we ended up in this inherited, which is what you never want to have happen. You don't want to be dumped on to somebody who doesn't want you. So we were orphaned and then we were sent to somebody else. And, um. And they just did a pissy job with it. And then um, Universal was to uh, was supposed to release the DVD. John Doe, Michael DeBar, John Taylor, me and Kurt, we all did commentary for it. And then that guy got fired. That oh was no! Happening oh that. my god! <laughs> So wow. these are the things you can't do anything about because when that person gets fired, they don't want anything to do with their projects. And this is just the most horrific thing about these kinds of things. So there, um, so that's one of those, I think if, if, she, and you know, by the way, Mi Vita Loca also is, is on just a constantly bootlegged DVD and, mm-hmm. you know, HBO for whatever reason has not put out, A new DVD has not put out a Blu-ray. I can't figure out who that is that I need to contact. It's just, it's kind of maddening, you know, how things happen. So, um, so uh, I don't know. The the answer to that is I just am not sure. You know, I mean, with Mivita Loca and I'm sure with Sugartown, it'll be interesting. I'll go see. I mean, I'm fine with it all being on YouTube. I'm Mm -hmm. great. I'm like, at least people are seeing this stuff because yeah. I'm making yeah. any it anyways. So good, I'm glad that people are seeing it. Um, maybe to look at, like, we'll get like a million views and then get taken down. Then I'll get mm. another million views and I'll get taken it. But it's <laughs> crazy, you know. That's how most people see it, you know. That's so cool. um, these films kind of live on uh, on YouTube. So please do go YouTube, watch it for free. And uh, maybe someday we can get both of those movies out there.
0: Fingers crossed. A question I know that everyone will be curious about is if there are any projects you've longed to make that you haven't yet. Do you have a bunch of scripts in a drawer ready to go? And who do Kate and I need to call to make that happen? (laughs) It's true. It's true. We will. (laughs) I
1: love that that, girls. Um, Well, recently, you know, we've been trying to make a film that I was trying to make 30 years ago with Cineville, um, uh, Paul is Dead, which is truly autobiographical. Mm. And um, and I think that that's, that's starting to, that looks like that might actually happen. I mean, you never wow. know, yeah. but it does look like it. I mean, we're out to cast now to read the script and You know, and if we get if we meet a certain uh, casting requirement contingency, then uh, then we've got we've got um, people to green light it. So so that's kind of amazing, you know, that is out there and it is that it had this revival again, you know, so um, so that's one one of them. And then, uh, yeah, it's funny because I wrote a script a few years ago set in 1973 in the San Fernando Valley. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I started seeing that Paul Thomas Anderson was, yeah. doing. It. I was like, no, great minds <laughs> of the very year, you know? So, um. So I don't know. I kind of was like, well, let's put that aside for a while. So <laughs>
2: the I don't thing know. is, we can always use another 70s Valley movie. And I always. think many folks watched Licorice Pizza and wish that it was more from the Alana perspective instead of the Gary perspective.
1: So uh-huh. I would certainly uh-huh. welcome we it's a very different movie. It's a very different movie. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> I even had a dream. See, this is what I do to get over my... Um, to get over myself. So I had a dream, you know, first of all, can, I mean, genuinely congratulate the winners, but, um, but I also had this dream that I, I went to a screening and Paul was there and I go, Paul, and he goes, Allison, And, and I said, you know, I'm so sorry. I haven't seen your movie yet. Cause I just thought I would torture myself because I wrote a script set in 1973, in the valley, and he goes, ah, oh, you know, your movie's probably totally different from mine. Mm-hmm. And he says, I hope you'll enjoy it, and I hope you get to make your movie. And I said, Aww. well, yeah. and so that was that was, yeah, that. and so then yeah. I was like, yeah, maybe I will get to make my movie, you know, maybe it's all right, you know. Yeah. But I will tell filmmakers out there that this will happen to you a gazillion times. Oh, yeah. You know. People will, you'll think you have an idea that nobody else has got, and then something will come up and you'll go, oh my God, so-and-so is making this, and they can, they can go make it, and I'm going to struggle to try and make something similar, but you know, it doesn't matter. It's, I mean, God, in Hollywood in the 40s, they were making the same movie over and over again <laughs> at every studio. Yeah. And we still love them to this day. And we compare them, go, well, this is kind of like Postman Always Rings Twice, but on a really low budget, you know? <laughs> no so, public yeah, pictures. And maybe but that yeah. one's better, you know? Yeah. Who knows? yeah. So, um, so it's all open. But that one will wait. That one's going to take a backseat for a while. But- um, Okay. But oh. yeah, so so there's lots of stuff out there, I think, that um, there's other, yeah, I mean, my God, you can imagine over the years I've written so many scripts that, um, you know, that were close to getting made or didn't get made, mm. or, you know, and often, you know, if I think about things behind the sun, like that went through a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of stuff before it actually became what it was, you know, and so... Ah. Um, I mean in terms of how the film was made, oh, so okay. um, and the cast that I ended up with, which thank god
0: remarkable cast, yeah. My yeah. god, Don Cheadle, Kim Dickens, I mean, so incredible.
1: Good. So good. It just I'm just amazed when I look at look at them and the little kids that played the little Yes, self, you know, they were so good, and um yeah, so there's stuff. There's there's there, these drawers be- below okay. me are full of scripts. <laughs> All right, tell <laughs> oh, us who to call
0: and we're on it. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna
1: take you up on yes. it. Believe me.
0: Banana
2: phone. Absolutely. Um. I was just gonna say. I hope you can cash in on some of the Beatlemania that's reemerged post Get Back with yeah. Paul is Dead. It's just so nice to sure. see this whole generation of, of new folks be like, you know, who's pretty cool, the Beatles.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yes. I love, I love that. that. I love that so much. Yeah, that was spectacular, wasn't oh, it? That stunning. get stunning. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yep. So good. And and my script is set in '69, so it's really you know wow. that era. It's that it's that Paul McCartney with the beard. Okay. Yeah.
2: Everybody's well, favorite Paul, the hottest Paul, the hottest Paul.
1: Totally. Totally. Yeah. And that's another thing was that, that that film was financed in the 90s in like 1994 and an actor dropped out and the financing fell apart and I was pissed off at him for like 20 years or something. Oh no. And then a few years ago I saw a uh I saw something that he had worked in and I loved it so much I thought I gotta put this aside now and so I wrote him an amends not that I did anything wrong to him but I was mad at him so I wrote him an amends along with a fan letter I said I gotta do the amends so that then I can write you this fan letter so um so I did that and then he wrote back, I mean, his agents were so nice. They were like, oh my God, this is so great. And it, and it was, I happened to have written it on Yom Kippur and they go, he says, the agent says, I don't, I don't imagine that you're Jewish, but this is a very Yom Kippur thing to do. Oh. So he sent it on to this actor who's a big star now. And, um, and he wrote me back and he goes, oh, isn't this wonderful? I love it that we buried the hatchet. Oh. You know, And I said, but I still think you would have been a great Paul McCartney. You know, I said, I was looking at you going, who does he remind? Paul McCartney. McCartney. You know, so, um, so it was great. And then the very next day, this was two years ago, the very next day, my producers from Cineville called and said, we're thinking that it's time to make Paula's dead out of the blue. So I, that kind of, you know, I, I got rid of that and then it opened up again, you know,
0: is Paul McCartney aware of the project? I'm sure. Oh, well, you know, he,
1: it's funny because he was very aware of it in the 90s. Okay. When we were going to make it because um, uh, he had read the script. And in fact, he he even um, named an album Paula's Live where he's walking across Abbey Road and the... Mm. the And the clues are changed and stuff (laughs) to reflect him. Like instead of 28, if it's like 44, 54 is or something, you know? (laughs) Um, So he made that record and his daughter called me and said, you know, I want you to know that dad came on, went on MTV and in England and said, they asked him, why did you embrace this Paula's dead rumor finally? And he goes, Oh, because of this woman's script, Allison Anders, and you know.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: So forth. So that was pretty amazing. <laughs> and um yes. and recently, like a couple of years ago, um, the white album got re-released. And um, and he was talking about you know, a friend of mine called and said, Oh my god, Paul McCartney's talking about you in the in the liner notes. And he was talking about, um, female characters in his songs. And he said how I had said for these yes. characters. And so um so that was pretty amazing that I made it into the white album. So
2: can you imagine telling teenage Allison that that like no, yes. by the
1: way, the, mind blown. Was, <laughs> yes. who was crazy? Who was crazy? <laughs> the Beatles talking about me.
0: Oh man. Oh you can't beat that
1: yeah so i have to you know i need i i owe him the new draft of the script all these years later to see if i still have his blessing but um but yeah uh yeah it's 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 definitely a good time for it
2: yeah i'm gonna start lighting my you. candles for that now thank like, you, this you
1: yeah <laughs> <I believe laughs> this <in happen>. power. <laughs>
0: yeah we need <laughs> it we need it so, yeah. like, um <laughs> uh, <laughs> well Allison I want to thank you so much for doing this it's been such a joy to speak with you and Kate hey, great seeing you, you again
2: uh, this the was best so way nice. to spend
0: an evening so fun So uh, fun.
2: yeah so fun. thank you so much Allison for sharing so candidly and so generously yes. oh god stories. thank
1: you both thank you both we oh, can for days
2: I know I was I like know. should this be a regular <laughs> part of the show <laughs> You have the best stories, Allison. Like I, I yeah, I, all these like I don't know these like cool guys, storied male directors. Like yeah. Paul McCartney's <laughs> not right about them
0: in the liner notes for the White Album remaster. That's, That's so true. <laughs> That's <laughs> yes. right. That's yes. right. <laughs> Informing Harry Dean Stanton's performance. No I big mean, deal. No yes. big deal. Yeah, <laughs> you need to write the story of your whole life, Allison, because it's just unbelievable and Please. so cool. Yeah. Thank
1: you. Thank you. I needed that today.
0: Oh, I
2: I know this made my heart very full.
1: It's always so great to see you guys. You too. You too. Let's all go hang out too.
0: I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals,